That is so much easier said than done, isn't it? Our, our will tends to be very, very strong. Tonight is the seventh installment in a series called The Heart of a Champion about the life of this remarkable man named Joseph. The Holy Spirit spent more time in the book of Genesis detailing the life of Joseph than he did any other person. Abraham is one of the most famous and foundational people in the Bible, but his life story is contained in just a small handful of verses. Isaac's life is in even less. Jacob, a little bit more detail. But then you come to Joseph, and starting in verse 37, all the way through the end of the book of chapter 50, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 37 through 50, is the life of Joseph. We know from the scriptures that the prison guard and Potiphar and Pharaoh all had a similar observation about Joseph. They saw that the Lord was with him. We are in chapter 41. Look at verse 38. Pharaoh just met this young man, met him for the very first time. Pharaoh's a pagan. He's a heathen man. He does not know the true God. And Pharaoh said unto his servants, can we find such a one as this is, a man in whom the spirit of God is? An unsaved man looking at him saying, can we find anybody like him? The Spirit of God is in this man. That has led us to start looking back at his life and asking ourselves the question, so what is it that they saw in Joseph that led them to this conclusion? We've learned several things. Number one, we learned that Joseph stayed holy in his personal walk in spite of his hurt. Many people today play the victim card. Well, I did wrong, but it's because someone wronged me. Joseph never did that. Uh, he did not allow his brother's mistreatment of him, uh, Potiphar's wife's mistreatment of him, or anyone else to cause him to do wrong. He stayed holy in spite of his hurt. We know that he lost his family. He lost his favored status as daddy's favorite. And he lost his freedom but Joseph never lost his faith. He held on to that all the way through. Number three, we learned that he protected his testimony at all costs, even though nobody else was watching out for him. Mom and dad were nowhere in the picture. There was no spiritual leadership in his life the whole time he was in Egypt until he was 39 years of age when his dad finally was reunited with him. But Joseph protected his testimony. When Potiphar's wife tried to lure him into sin, he said, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord and against my master. His testimony was all important to him. Number four, we know that Joseph was a blessing to everyone he came in contact with, even though the reality was none of them deserved it. He was mistreated in his home. He was mistreated in Potiphar's house. He shouldn't have been in the prison. He shouldn't have been in Egypt. And yet everybody that came in contact with that remarkable young man, their lives were blessed as a result of it. Number five, we learned that Joseph always gave all the credit to God. It wasn't, yeah, God is really good and God did this, but then I helped. It was, this is all about God. None of this is about me. Uh, he, he deflected praise that was delivered to him automatically and just put it up to the Lord. Whether therefore you eat or drink 
or whatsoever you do, finish it with me, church, do all to the glory of God. That was Joseph. Tonight, we want to look at another aspect of his life. It is contained in Scripture. It comes from some statements the Bible makes that, that most people tend to overlook, but we cannot because they lay the foundation for one of the biggest things that drew the attention of all of the house of Pharaoh and all of Egypt and even today all of the world upon Joseph. In our text, Joseph is being elevated to second in command in the country of Egypt. He's interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. He's told him about the seven years of plenty that are about to start, followed by seven years of terrible famine. He even goes as far to counsel him, to tell him what God wants him to do, how to avoid the starvation of his people. And, and Pharaoh is astounded. We read Pharaoh's statement in verse number 38. And automatically, Joseph goes in one day from being a prisoner in jail to being the second in command in all of the nation of Egypt. Pharaoh gives him his royal ring. It's the signet ring by which Pharaoh would seal all of his documents. Joseph wearing that ring would automatically let anybody know who saw it that whatever he does, he does by the authority of Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh gives him a new name in verse 45. How I wish Tim would have been here to read scripture tonight. He's been home with a migraine uh, and very, very sick all day. Verse 45, and Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath Paaneah. Tim hates names, just like Jason Kirkevich. Um, and Pharaoh gave him that name. That name actually has a meaning. Uh, historians have traced it back into what they believe would be the, the correct translation if you, that was in an Egyptian word, meaning the preserver of the age. Zaphnath Paaneah, the preserver of the age. That was a title that was, an a, uh, that was a, a, a name that Pharaoh was saying, this is what we think about this young man. Pharaoh chose him a wife. The Bible says he married a girl named Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. Now we realize he marries an unsaved girl, an Egyptian girl. I don't believe she stayed that way. You wouldn't hang around Joseph very long without coming to know the one true God. But it was a marriage arranged by Pharaoh. Joseph had no choice. But it was done on purpose. The priest of On uh, was the highest priesthood in Egypt at that time. Uh, the sun god Ra was the father or the god of all gods in their pantheon and so forth. And so the priest of On was the spokesperson for Ra. By Pharaoh giving him the daughter of the priest of On as his wife, he was bestowing yet another honor upon Joseph. You and I wouldn't necessarily see it that way, but in the minds of the Egyptian, that is what is going to happen. The years of plenty came about. Uh, Joseph gathered corn as the sand of the sea, very much until he left numbering, for it was without number. Now, I want you to notice, starting in verse 50, our text for tonight. Unto Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came. Could you just stop for a moment? Joseph can't look back on a family life and a home life with much favor. He can't look back on a lot of good memories because he didn't have them. His family was as dysfunctional as they come. His brothers hated him to the point where they sold him as a slave. Do you realize this is the first time 
in Joseph's life, he's, he's got a wife, and now he has two little boys of his own, that Joseph gets to experience what a happy home looks like. Many of us know Pastor Joe Vasek. Brother Vasek was adopted. He did not even meet his birth mother until just a few years ago. Uh, Joe and, and Amy told me that when their daughter Catherine, their oldest daughter, was born, that uh, Joseph, Joe held her, <laughs> Joseph, Joe Vasek held Catherine in his arms for the very first time. And Joe made this statement. He said, for the first time in my life, I am seeing my own flesh and blood. He never knew his mom and dad. He, he's since met his mom, uh, never met any of his other brothers. It was an overwhelming moment. Do you realize what this is like for Joseph? He's, he's got a family, and this time it's a family filled with love. As he has those two boys, and, and they're, they're born probably several years apart, verse 51, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. In the Bible, names mean something. And oftentimes, a parent would name their child on purpose. Sometimes it was named after a family member. It was a family name passed along. Uh, sometimes the name was given um, as, a, as a marker of, of a period of history in which they were living. There were, it was even known in some cultures that parents would not name their child for three or four years. It's just like, hey, you. You know, that type of thing. And the parents would watch the child to sort of get an idea of their personality and their traits and, and things like that. And they would give them a name that would sort of fit with that. Well, Manasseh didn't wait three or four years. I'm sorry, Joseph didn't wait three or four years. When he held his firstborn son, he said, I'm going to name him Manasseh. Uh, the name Manasseh means causing to forget or forgetfulness. Forgetfulness, I think, is my middle name. I think it is my greatest skill right now. Uh, our secretaries can attest how many times I walk out of my office and I need to tell somebody something or get something and I'll just stop and one of them will look at me and go, I have no idea what I came out here for. I mean, just that fast it's gone. But Joseph didn't name his son Manasseh because he was starting to lose his memory or anything. He tells us why. He said, I'm going to call him Manasseh, forgetfulness, for God, said he, hath made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. He named his child specifically, and then he gave the reason why. His second son was born. The name of the second called he Ephraim. The word Ephraim by translation means double fruit, abundance of fruitfulness. He said, for God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, I want us to just talk about those two names tonight. I want us to consider them. Joseph's crowning moment is about to come in the chapters that follow. In chapter 42, his brothers who betrayed him and sold him are coming to Egypt. And Joseph will see them for the first time um, in, in uh, like 22 years. And prophecy is about to be fulfilled in all of that. And there'll be several chapters of back and forth before uh, Joseph reveals himself and, and so forth. And the fame thereof is going to go all through Pharaoh's house. But before that moment comes, Joseph reveals some things 
that God did for him. And we need to sit up and take notice of this because sooner or later, if we've not already dealt with a similar issue, we will. The Savior said in Luke chapter 17, it is impossible, but that offenses should come. You're going to walk through life. It's impossible for you to go through life without getting offended, without getting hurt by someone. The Savior said it is impossible. If that is true, then you and I need to know what to do when we get offended. This is where the rubber meets the road. We're learning from a man that God spent a lot of time telling us his story, and so I hope that we will learn well. Let's look first at Manasseh in verse 51. Joseph made this statement, for God said he hath made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. He is, he is uh, some 34, 35 years of age at this time. It's another several years before his brothers are going to show up. And he says, God's made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. There are some things, according to the Bible, that you and I are supposed to remember. In fact, we're supposed to go out of our way to make sure that we do not forget them. Ecclesiastes 12.1 says, Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. Solomon writes to the younger generation and said, Don't forget the Lord. Don't forget the Bible. Don't forget what you've been taught. Don't you forget the truth of Almighty God. Don't go out there and, and have decisions to make and just take all this truth and cast it behind your back and do your own thing. You keep God first and foremost. And as you make a choice, say, what does the Bible say? What does God want me to do? He said, do that while you're young. And when you're older, you'll not have regrets. Uh, the evil days won't be there. You'll not look back and say, my life's a mess. I have no pleasure in this life. Boy, I wish I could do it over. He said, remember God now while you have the chance to do it right. There's some things we're supposed to remember. The Savior the night before the cross in Luke 22:19, 19, the Bible says he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them saying, this is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me the Lord's Supper, first the bread and then the cup. And as a church, periodically we stop everything and we remember the cross, the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. We're to do that on purpose. We are to remember the price that was paid for our salvation. Psalm 103 verse 2 says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. God is so good. The children sang that for us this morning. Uh, count your many blessings, name them one by one. We sing, oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good. But if we're not careful, we'll forget the good things God's done for us, especially when a problem or a crisis or a heartache or a disappointment comes along. And then before we know it, we are Job's wife saying, curse God and die. No, no, don't forget the goodness of God. Don't forget his benefits. Psalm 119 verse 61, David said, the bands of the wicked have robbed me. Wicked people have done wrong to me. Uh, they, they've tried to take everything from me, but he said this, but I have not forgotten thy law. 
David said, thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. So there are some things that you and I are supposed to on purpose remember. But there are also some things that we are supposed to forget. There are some things that we're supposed to forget. Paul wrote in Philippians 3 in verse 13, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I haven't arrived. I'm not all that in a bag of chips. I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, forgetting my victories or my failures or forgetting, forgetting everything that's in my past, he said, reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. There are some things we're supposed to forget. We could probably make quite a list of that from Scripture but for sake of time, let's just talk about the one that is before us tonight. Keep your place, Genesis 42, and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1. One of the most important things that you and I are supposed to forget are the wrongs that have been done to us by other people. It is impossible, but that offenses should come. But you and I aren't supposed to be keeping score. You and I are supposed to forget those things. We're going to look into that tonight. 2 Samuel chapter 1, David learns of the death of King Saul. A man from Saul's army, who was a servant, an Amalekite, came into the camp, David's camp, and, and he was battle-weary, and he was faint, and they gave him some food and water, and, and uh, he concocted a story where supposedly he saw Saul, and Saul was wounded and asked him to kill him so that the Philistines didn't get him. By the way, that's not what happened. Saul fell on his own, sore, own spear and died. That's how it happened. Uh, this young man thought that he would gain favor with David by killing the man, who had tried to kill David. Saul was David's enemy, not because David wanted him to be, he just was. Saul hated him, he was jealous of him. Saul had made David's life a nightmare for years and years and years. Understand that. David finds out that his enemy is dead. Now look please in verse number 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. Jonathan was David's best friend. We're going to skip down to verse 19. This is David's song that he wrote. The beauty of Israel is slain upon thy high places. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath. That was the place where uh, Goliath came from. Publish it not in the streets of Ascalon, another Philistine city, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Ye mountains of Gilboa, that's where Saul and Jonathan died. Let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away, the shield of Saul, as though he had not been anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Can you read with me the first part of verse 23, church? Ready? Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives. I can see David saying that about Jonathan, but he said that about Saul. Just 
Can you let that sink in? The man who tried to kill him, chased him endlessly. Saul caused David's family to have to go live in Moab, a foreign country, lest Saul capture them and make them a target to Lord David in. David lost everything that he had at one time because of Saul. David was married to Saul's daughter, Michael, M-I-C-A-L. Saul actually didn't even annul the marriage. He just took his daughter when David went on the run and gave her to another man. And, and the, Bible, the Bible says David and Michael loved each other. They had one of those youthful love story moments. Saul ruined that, and Michael never, ever, ever came back in heart to David. Saul took everything from him, and yet Saul, or David writes the words, Saul and Jonathan were what? Lovely and pleasant in their lives. I challenge you, read the rest of David's song and find one negative thing that he said about Saul. I'll give you a hundred bucks if you can find it. And I'm willing to do that because it's not there. It's not there. Joseph said back in Genesis chapter 41, if we can go back there now, he said, God said, he hath made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. Joseph has not yet be, been reunited with his brothers. He's not yet told them, don't be angry with yourselves about what you did because God was in all of this. God had a plan to preserve life and we're all a part of that plan. His forgiveness of his brothers on that day in his, in his home hasn't happened yet. It's out in the future some years. So he hasn't forgiven yet, but listen carefully. He's already forgotten. He's already forgotten 30 years of nightmare. Notice again, God said he hath made me forget most of my toil and most of my father's house. Is that what it says? No, it's that word all, that, that all-encompassing word. God made me forget all of it. Can I get you to understand this Bible truth? Forgetting is part of forgiving. We've often heard the statement, and we may have even made it. Well, I can forgive them, but I can't forget. Then you did not forgive. Forgetting is part of forgiving. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. I'm getting stared at. Like, really? Yeah, really. Jeremiah chapter 31. And look, if you would, please, to verse number 34. This is the Lord speaking. They shall teach no man, every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord. Nobody's going to be out there saying, man, you need to get saved, or you need to get right with God, or you need to get close to God. The day will come, they won't do that. For they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin for how long? No more. Do you see that forgiveness and forgetfulness are hand in hand? God said, I'm gonna forgive their iniquity and I'll never remember it again. I'll remember it. No, forgetting is a part of forgiving. Turn with me to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, we've referenced this, but we want to look at the passage tonight. Luke 17 and verse 1. Then said he unto the disciples, 
It is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Um, the Lord often referred to his followers as little ones, whether they were grown-ups or little tiny children. Um, notice what he says in verse 3. Now, there, there's going to be offenses, and, and uh, God's going to take it seriously when it happens. Verse 3, take heed to whom? Yourselves. Seldom when we are offended do we take heed to ourselves. Our entire attention is focused on the offender. And you know that's true. It's on what they did. It's on what they said. But God says, take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, do what? Forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt what? Forgive him. Do you notice there that you and I are not given any special privilege of discerning who was sincere in their I'm sorry and who wasn't? Who really meant it and who didn't? As I'm looking at that passage, if this guy said I'm sorry and then went out and did it again in the same day and said, oh, I'm sorry and did it again in this, it's seven times in one day, wouldn't you sort of be a tad suspicious of his sincerity? Yes or no? Yeah. By the way, it might not be that he's insincere. It might be that he's struggling with something he doesn't have the victory over yet. Could be one or the other, but guess what? We're not given the liberty to sit back and say, I don't think you meant it. I don't think you're sincere, so I don't have to forgive. The Savior said, you don't get to do that. Every time he comes, you forgive. And remember, forgiving and forgetting go hand in hand. Uh, look, if you would, to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Similar situation going on here. It's Jesus teaching about what happens when we're wronged. And Peter had a question, probably one that we have asked ourselves from time to time. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times. I think Peter might have been going back to that earlier statement. If he comes to you seven times in a day and says, I repent, forgive him. I think Peter's got that number there. Peter's a lot like us. He's got the scorecard out. So after that, I don't have to forgive anymore, right? Boy, did Jesus blow that away. Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until 70 times. That's 490 times. If you're still keeping score after that, you've got a bigger problem than the person you're keeping score on. Forgiveness is supposed to be a blanket statement. Well, yeah, but, but, but they're getting away with it. No, Jesus already said in Luke 17, uh, it, it were better for them that a millstone's tied around their neck and cast into the sea. God, God has a way of taking care of things. Over and over in the Bible, God gave his people the, the statement, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. You and I aren't wise enough or spiritual enough to handle vengeance. But we think that's our domain. We think that's our right. But we're, we're not right at all. 
Nowhere in the scripture are we given this luxury to determine if that other person was sincere or not. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. As you're turning there, can I ask you a question? I, just, just be honest about it. Have you ever done something that you knew was wrong, something you sinned against the Lord, something you said, something you did, and you asked God to forgive you? How many have ever done that? Okay, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on this. How many have done that? You've asked God to forgive you and then done it again, and you already asked God to forgive you. Some are raising their hands anyhow. Mine has to go up. We're humans. We have a fallen nature. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Don't break the Holy Spirit's heart. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you. That idea of being put away, uh, it's, it's a word in the Old Testament that meant divorce, to put your wife away. Let all of that stuff be divorced from you. A once and for all separation with all malice, the desire to see something harmful or negative happen to someone else. Look at verse 32. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted. Next phrase, church. Forgiving one another. And here's the measure of how we are to forgive, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So I'm supposed to forgive everybody that sins against me, whatever form it is, in exactly the same way God's forgiven me, according to Jeremiah 31, 49, how complete is God's forgiveness? He forgives and he forgets. He says, I'll remember it no more. If I'm keeping score and remembering, I didn't forgive. I didn't forgive. Long before his brothers showed up, Joseph had already dealt with that issue and he said, God hath made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. Tough truth, isn't it? But it's where we live. It's just, it's the world in which we live in a fallen world. Um, and we're supposed to forgive just as Christ has forgiven us. Think about this for a moment. On the cross, as the Savior is nailed there, they're, they're ranting at him from below. The soldiers mock him. The chief priests and rulers are, are shouting at him. He saved others himself. He cannot save. The two malefactors are on each side, and they are railing against him. Do you know that one of the first utterances of the Savior when he was hanging on the cross was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That was one of the very first things he said. Question. Who had asked him for forgiveness? Had the chief priests, had any of them asked for forgiveness? Yes or no? Had any of the soldiers asked for forgiveness? Had either of the thieves asked him for forgiveness? Not at all. Do you understand that the Savior forgave them before they asked? And here we are hanging on to it. They're murdering him. 
and we're hanging on to whatever it is we're hanging on to. I, I dare say, I've been through some hard things in life. I've had people do harsh, unkind, negative, hurtful things. I've never gone through what Joseph did. I, I, none, of my, none of my hurts have, they don't hold a candle to what Joseph went through. And yet that man said, God hath made me forget. Now, I want you to notice this before we move on to his second son. Go back to Genesis 41. Genesis 41. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God said he hath made me forget all my toil in all my father's house. Can I tell you what Joseph did not say here? I'm going to name my son Manasseh, which means forgetting, because I learned to forget. He did not say that. He said, God hath caused me to forget. See, Joseph was a human being like we are. The Bible doesn't record this about him, but this little statement sort of gives us a glimpse that Joseph struggled with the wrongs that had been done against him. Who wouldn't? Would you have? Would you have been mad at your brothers? Anybody? I would. Um, my mind would have been going a thousand miles an hour what I would do if I ever had the chance. That's human nature. Joseph's statement here says he didn't do this on his own, but God did it for him. Well, I can't forget. Then you need to get a hold of God and say, God, I need your help. Because if I'm supposed to obey the Bible and I'm supposed to forgive one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven me, I have to be able to forget because if I haven't forgotten and I'm still keeping score, it means I really haven't forgiven and I'm not being obedient. I'm not being the right testimony and I'm not going to enjoy the joy of the Holy Ghost in my life until I do. God, I need your help. Does not the Bible say I can do all things, finish it, church, through Christ, which strengtheneth me. What I tell you now, I tell by explicit permission. Last Sunday, we had a number of guests here for the anniversary service. My sister and brother-in-law traveled 500 miles from the other side of the state of Pennsylvania to be here for the day. It was supposed to be a surprise, but Tim doesn't do surprises well, and so I knew that they were going to come and Sunday evening, and we were, we were sort of waiting for the service to start, and I'd really not had much time to uh, fellowship with them a lot. Uh, so I just sat down over in this section, and we were talking a little bit. And my sister volunteered. Uh, she said, do you know why we are here today? I said, no. I said, I'm just really happy that you're here. She said, we are here because you're the reason that we are here. And I'm just kind of like, you're going to have to explain that one. I, I don't understand. Again, I tell this by explicit permission. And she's asked me even to tell it, maybe to help some young people not follow her path. My sister, brother, and I all got saved on the same day in 1972. She was a year younger than I was. She was 13. I was 14. My brother was 16. We all went to church faithfully from that time forward. Uh, while I was in Bible college, uh, my sister started working in the Christian school in our church. Uh, she is a talented pianist and musician, and she was heavily involved in all of the music in our church. And uh, she ran a bus route. She brought 40, 50 people in every Sunday on her bus route and so forth. 
But unbeknownst to anyone, mom and dad and so forth, my sister started dating an unsaved guy that she met at a part-time job. And one night she told mom and dad that she was going to go out to the mall and she had her coat draped over her arm. What they didn't know is underneath her coat, she had a small overnight bag and she left and they waited for her to come in. And it started getting late, and this is in the days before cell phones or anything like that. There was no way to reach out to her. She just didn't come home. And what had happened, she and her boyfriend decided to move in together. He was not saved. It, it, it just tore our family up. Not apart, it just tore it up. Mom and dad were beside themselves. They were frantic. They were, they, uh, they were trying to find out. They called the place where uh, my sister worked. Uh, to find out if they knew anything about this boy and they got a name and they tried to track down the parents. And over the course of a few days, um, they, they found her and, and she had nothing but unkind words to say about her mom and dad. I was in Bible college. I, I, I'm kind of hearing all of this third party. Um, and um, it, it was a hard time. I graduated from school. I came home and actually uh, became youth pastor in my home church, ran the Christian school, the one that she had quit uh, working in. It was about three years had gone by. Um, they barely saw my parents when they did. It was brutal. It was brutal. It's amazing how when we fall away from God, we blame it on others and take it out on them. And... Um, so I decided one evening that I needed to try to reach out to my sister and found out where they lived. They lived in a little trailer. And so I went out one night and knocked on the door and she's rather surprised to see me. And um, she invited me in and I wasn't there to lecture her. I wasn't there to put her in her place. I wasn't there to chew her out. Um, I was there because I was her brother um, and I cared about her. And uh, I knew she'd hurt mom and dad. And I'm gonna be honest, that hurt me because I knew how much she was hurting them. Um, yeah, I, I was, I was kind of mad about that. I was very mad about that. But my anger and hurt weren't going to help anything. I forgot all that this happened. Come in, they set me down at the kitchen table, and my sister decided to have an in-your-face moment. She walked over the refrigerator, pulled out a beer, and set it down in front of me and said, here, have some to drink. She knew I wasn't going to drink. She wanted to see my reaction. She wanted to see if she could rile me up and get me to lash out at her and all of those kind of things. And she said, your response floored us. You just looked at me sadly and said, Joyce, you know I'm not gonna drink that. I didn't come here for this. I didn't come here to be your enemy. I came here because I care about you. And she put the beer away. And that was, that was the opening salvo. Six months went by, and we were all at my parents' house for their wedding anniversary. It was a Saturday night. It was cold, pouring down rain. And Joyce and Jim were there. They had gotten married, and uh, even that in itself was a nightmare for the family. But they were all there, and I left to go back home to Apollo, Pennsylvania, because I had to be at church the next day. And I got about a mile or so from the house, and my car broke down. It just shut itself off. I mean... 
just shut itself up, pouring down rain. I had to walk up this steep hill to get to where my parents lived. I kicked my car because that'll teach you the lesson. I broke my toe on the front of my car, letting out my temper, stomped up into the house, walked in. They said, what are you doing here? And I'm just all mad and out of sorts about my stupid car. And, and uh, you know, somebody's going to have to drive some 30 miles to, to get me home in the middle of this rainstorm. And I, I had no idea what I was going to do. And all of a sudden, my brother-in-law, Jim, said, hey, Joyce and I'll take you home if you can put us up for the night because they lived in the other direction. And they said, you put us up for the night, we'll go to church with you tomorrow. Fine. Fine. So I dried off a little bit. We got in the car and I gave them my bedroom. I slept on the couch. And the next morning they came to Calvary Bible Church where I was the youth pastor at the time. I did junior church that day in a little American Legion Hall across the, the, the road from where our church was. And when it was done, I was bringing all the kids back and getting all the bus kids uh, on the correct bus and so on and so forth. And this lady came barging out of the back door of the church. Her name is Helen Eaton. Um, she's born and raised in the mountains of West Virginia. This woman could wrestle a bear and the bear would die. You didn't mess with Helen. Heart like gold. I mean, but you didn't mess with her. She came flying out that church. They called me Pastor Tom there. Pastor Tom, Pastor Tom. And her arms are going like this. And she ran over and she picks me up and turns me around and said, they need you in there. That's all I knew. And she's shoving me into the back door of the church. I had no idea what was going on. The invitation uh, was going on. I heard the music playing and I stepped in the back of the auditorium and Helen steps up behind me and all she's doing is she's just pointing like that. And I looked and my sister Joyce was sitting on the front row. So I walked around the side, sat down in the front row and she was crying. I said, what's going on? She said, I just got right with God. I'm looking around, I said, where's Jim? And she said, there, he was stepping into the baptistry. She said, he just got saved. From that day on, they have been in an independent fundamental Baptist church. She said, the reason that happened is because when we were ignorant with you, you acted like it didn't matter. And here's the amazing thing. She told me that story. I didn't remember it happened. I have been racking. I'm, I'm telling you the story as she told it to me because even now, I don't remember that happening. Jim verified everything there. You say, what is that? God gave me the ability to forget. I'm not super Christian. You know that. I know that. God knows that. God gave me a, an, an ability in that one circumstance to forget. And when I look at them, I see what God has done. Isn't that a much better way to live than all the anger? Be honest. The stress we put on ourselves. Joseph got rid of that before his brothers ever showed up. Now, think of this. Think of this just for a moment. By the way, the second point, I can get through pretty quick. Okay? Um, imagine if Joseph hadn't done that. God hadn't caused him to forget all of his toil. That's Potiphar's house, the prison, the whole nine yards, and all of his father's house. And it was still seething inside of him. And then his brothers showed up to get food and it was seething inside of him. How do you respond when you're seething? How many of you respond well? 
Do you realize, do you realize what a disaster that could have been? Joseph saw them. They didn't recognize him. He looked like an Egyptian. He was speaking in the Egyptian tongue, speaking to them through an interpreter. He was 17 when, when they sold him. He's now a 39-year-old looking like an Egyptian man, but he knew who his older brothers were. He understood their speech. And the Bible said he wasn't overcome with anger. He wasn't overcome with a, oh, I got you guys now. This is my moment. You are going to pay. He had to walk out of the room and weep. They're here. They're actually here. My brothers are here. And there would be a process involved, but there came a day he put everybody out of the room and he looked at them. He finally had his youngest brother, Benjamin, there and he said, I am Joseph. I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have seen the look on those guys' faces. And he didn't, he didn't reprimand them. He didn't rebuke them and said, I'm Joseph. Are you sorry for what you did? Bet you wish you didn't do that now. He said, no, God, don't be angry with yourselves. Don't beat yourselves up. God had a plan that was bigger than all of us. Joseph was able to do that because long before they ever showed up, God caused them to forget. And sometimes, beloved, we need to ask God to give us that ability. It doesn't come naturally to me. Maybe it does to you. It, it might, we're all, we all have different... <clears throat> Normally I tell people, just keep talking, but don't. We're in church. I'm sorry. It doesn't come naturally to me. I don't think it comes naturally to most people. It does come naturally to God. Did you catch that? It comes naturally to God. And if the Holy Spirit of God dwells within us, as the Bible says it does once we get saved, we have access to that power of God. And there are times every one of us need to say, God, I need you to help me forget. I need you to help me forget because I don't want to carry this burden around anymore. I need to forgive the way you forgive me and I need you to help me do that. I believe with all my heart that is a prayer that God will answer because he did it for Joseph. Did he not? And God is no respecter of persons. Verse 52, you don't believe I can get this done quickly, but I can. His firstborn son is born Manasseh. Forgetfulness. God, he said, hath made me forget all my toil, all my father's house. The name of the second called he Ephraim, for God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Joseph's life was bearing fruit. He's got sons. He's got a beautiful wife. He's got a home. He's got a reputation. He's, if you will, he's got a ministry. He's not a pastor or a prophet or anything like that. Uh, in the traditional sense, but, but he's, he's taking care of people. He's delivering a nation. Uh, he is about to deliver his family. He doesn't even know that that's on the horizon and about to happen. But he said, God's made me to be fruitful. Can I help you see a, a pattern here? Joseph didn't truly become fruitful until he became forgetful. One of the reasons you may not be growing in grace, one of the reasons your Christian life may feel stagnant might be because you're unwilling to forget. It's going to stop you. 
going to put a wall between you and your God. Joseph found that ability from God to forget everything that his brothers did to him, all of his past, all of that toil, and he said, God made me fruitful. He also said a second thing, God caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. The land of my affliction. We're often saying, boy, if I didn't, if I had a different home, if I had, had a different spouse, if I had different parents, if I had different uh, this, that, or the other thing, I could be a better Christian. The truth of the matter is, if you and I can't be a good Christian where we are right now, we won't be a good Christian anywhere else either. See, God's bigger than our circumstance. God's bigger than our family, bigger than our home life. He's bigger than our health. He's bigger than the economy. He's, he's bigger than anything that we're using as our excuse. That that's why I'm not growing, and that's why I don't have joy, and that's why I'm not fruitful. Joseph makes this amazing statement. God made me forget, and then follows up, and then he made me fruitful right here in the land of my affliction. This man, Joseph, challenges me like very few Bible characters do. He really does. Believe it or not, I ask the Lord all the time to make me more like Jesus. But there, it, it's not uncommon for me to read through this and say, Lord, could you help me be like Joseph? Could you help me be like Joseph? Maybe tonight you need God's help. And you need just say, Lord, I'm, I'm having a hard time forgetting. If you did it for Joseph, would you please do it for me? And if you'll be sincere and honest about that, God will do it. Problem is... Some of us just don't want to. Sometimes I don't want to forget. Sometimes I want to keep score. And that means that now I'm the one who's not right with God. Take heed to yourselves. Can we pray together? Father, thank you for the life of this incredible man.